Oh, it's a, such a very special moment. Um, when we think of things like these, we we know that only God can put things together the way He does. And uh, this morning is certainly one of those times. Uh, as I thought through about the message, I was I had two concerns. Uh, one was uh, that everybody may understand. Uh, and so because we were going to have some Italian folks, I thought, well, I could do some in English, then some in Italian. And, but then I think there's going to be some translation there in the back. So if you hear some voices, it's because of that. I think Lavinia is going to take care of, of that. Thank you. And secondly, the, the subject, because we have so many wonderful things happening. On, this is the Christmas season, and uh, if, as the Lord leads, we want to keep, especially in our minds, the birth of our Lord. And so, uh, that, that is that side, considering the love of God as manifested in Christ Jesus to us sinners. Um, but also, my son is getting married with Lavinia, and so I thought of trying to blend in some way. Perhaps it's an unusual blending, but it shouldn't be. You know, some thoughts concerning marriage, but then it's really as we want to contemplate the marriage between Christ and His church, Christ and His people. So it will be an unusual message in some ways, um, but I trust it will be a blessing to each and every one. Um, and let me just say again, what a joy it is to be with you. What a joy is to see your faces again. What a joy to see your appreciation towards Paul. No longer a young man, perhaps, <laughs> but so dedicated to the cause of Christ. Um, and it's a particular lesson to see that when perhaps some, some younger your pastors gave, gave up or give up, <laughs> there are some that are perhaps older in years, but they, they stand the test. And through the thick and thin of life. Uh, so that is a, a tremendous example of, of God's grace to you, this church. Uh, and we continue to pray, of course, that God will uh, bless the church, uh, fill it, and uh, use it as an instrument for the spread of the gospel. Uh, good to see Glenn again. Uh, we've been, I've been seeing him a lot these days. <laughs> And it's a particular joy to see him again. And our dear sister here also. And, uh, but especially, of course, the Italian folks that came from so far. Got here yesterday, uh, but this morning they were all up and ready to go. And that was, uh, that was such an encouragement. Uh, and uh, so I know we are filled with joy and uh, gratitude and peace in the Lord, the peace that we can have not in ourselves, because in ourselves we're all sinners and uh, deficient, very deficient before the grace of God and before our God, but our peace is in Christ who covers the multitude of our sins and gives us that peace that can only be found in His free grace. But when we consider the world, uh, the same thing cannot be said. Our world is a world in turmoil, uh, full of uh, uh, evil and wickedness and uh, disorientation 
and crisis and conflicts and violence. It seems really the world is all the way more spinning around a vortex, just quickly, quickly, quickly going down. And so, even as we, as we talk about such a beautiful thing as marriage, uh, such a joyous, marvelous gift that God gave to the human race, if we look at marriage in the context of the world, then there's a lot of reason for alarm, alarm. Let me give you some uh, st- st- statistics here from America and Italy. In America, we know <coughs> about half of marriages fail, and then 60% of second marriages fail, and 73% of third marriages fail. So we can honestly say the uh, marriage institution in America is in crisis. We can see that. <clears throat> the same thing is true in Italy. Let me give you some figures here. In 2019, uh, 184,000 people were married in Italy. 184,000 marriages. And we had also, in the same period of time, 85,000 divorces, about half of that, and 97,000 separations. So you have 184,000 marriages and 182,000 between divorces and separations. Uh, So in Italy we're seeing the same thing. There's a dissolution of marriage and uh, a a drastic, unprecedented dissolution of marriage. Uh, But a second thing that we notice that is quite surprising is that we see very little alarm because of this. The world is not alarmed about this, this fact. In fact, as we look at this problem, uh, the way Christians look at this problem and the world looks at this problem are completely different. The world is not alarmed about the dissolution of marriage. God's people are alarmed about the dissolution of marriage. Um, the analysis of the problem is completely different. The world would say marriage is not a great deal. We can find other ways for a man and a woman or whatever to live, you know, to live together. And so they are arranging and rearranging other ways to cohabit, to live together that, is, that are different from the institution of marriage as God designed it. Let me give you a few. First of all, many couples just live together. And they say, there's no need of marriage at all. There's no need of a vow. There's no need of a commitment. There's no need of faithfulness. We can do without all those things. We, you, get, you live together as long as the feeling lasts. And when the feelings are gone, you just go separate ways. It's just easy, isn't it? Then secondly, what about open marriages? Some, some live such a fact as an open marriage. So they married, they perhaps vowed, but in time they got sort of tired of each other, especially from a physical standpoint, and they 
feel urges inside of themselves, they want to try to, they want to have the freedom to satisfy these urges outside of the covenant of marriage, and they do. And sometimes they agree each other. Both uh, wife and husband agree each other. They can ha- they can have also uh, uh, other relationships outside of marriage, especially on a physical level. Um, and then, of course, we have uh, uh, then we have homosexual marriages. You know, that's another form of cohabitation, both women or men, and with the extension of uh, adoption of children, and, and all sorts of things are happening. And according to the world, these are ways in which this problem of marriage is trying to be solved. In the eyes of the world, these other ways to live you know, together are actually attempts to solve the problem of cohabitation. Because Husbands and wives don't seem to be able to get along anymore. So how do you solve that? Well, they say uh, this traditional, historical concept of marriage is outmoded, is absolute, obsoleto. So what do you do? You just get rid of it. You find other forms. Um, Well, now the way God's people look at this is completely different, completely different. For God's people, the dissolution of marriage in human society is a primary problem. And secondly, all these other forms in which the world is trying to solve the problem are also causes of the dissolution of marriage all the more. They are not solutions. (laughs) They are causes of dissolution. Um, So, let us... Take a few moments here to consider the way the Bible would speak of marriage and what it is. So we must go to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we need to go. Of course, even as we turn our Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, um, we can already hear the laughter of those who do not believe. Because for them it's completely senseless to go back, to try to solve this problem, to go back to a book that was written 3,500 years ago. They have a concept of progress, which essentially takes you, uh, makes you think and leads you to think that anything that's old, it's useless. Elderly people are useless. And old ideas are useless. And the ancient world is useless. And especially this old book, the Bible, is useless. The New Testament was written 2,000 years ago. The Old Testament began to be written 3,500 years ago. Genesis was written that long ago. So why, why look into this at all? Surely there can be no wisdom, <laughs> no enlightening from such an old book. Well, for... The standpoint of Christian people, that's one of the basic problems <laughs> that's leading humanity to destruction, the depreciation of truth. Because we know the truth is ageless. Uh, truth is timeless. If it's true, it is true today as it was true yesterday. It will be true tomorrow. If it's an absolute truth. 
So what we need to understand is not uh, what the most recent theory that some of these uh, ideologies are proposing is. What we need to know is the truth. What is the truth? What is going on? Um, Certainly, the world should be alarmed because by any point of view, marriage must be recognized as the foundational element of human society, the most essential organism of human society. Apart from marriage, you have the individual, one person. With marriage, you have two. That's society. (laughs) That's social togetherness. So, we're talking about the most basic organism of human society, marriage. And when we see that the most basic element of human society is dissolving, then we should be very alarmed. Because from the biblical standpoint, you cannot have the institution of marriage to dissolve and human society to be able to hold together. You cannot have that. If marriages dissolve, human society dissolves. So the world should be alarmed. We are alarmed for the world. And so, as Christians, we say, we must go back to Genesis. Why? Well, the very name of Genesis tells us Genesis means beginning, genesis, inizi, inizio, punto di principio. So Genesis means beginning. Beginning means foundations. Foundations means roots, radici. (laughs) And that's what Genesis provides for us. The beginning of all things, the point of origin of all things, the foundation of all things, the roots of all things that are true and fundamental to human life, human living, whether individually or, you know, collectively. So, as we, as we go to Genesis, I would have you to think, first of all, of the definition of mankind, a definizione dell'essere umano. This is what we meet here. Immediately, look at verse 26 and 27. The first thing that God says about the human being that he created, he defines it in the most essential way. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female created he them. What a wonderful summary of what a human person is. (laughs) Una definizione essenziale I tre elementi fondamentali dell'identità dell'essere umano. The three most elements, the three most basic elements of human identity are spelled out for us in verse 27. God created man. Man is a creature. Man is a creature. And we should all recognize that. We're not God. (laughs) We're not the creator of the universe. We are creatures who have been created by God. What does that mean? It means that all that we are and all that we have, we owe to God at all times. We are completely dependent on Him for our existence and for our subsistence. Noi dobbiamo 
tutta la nostra esistenza e sussistenza a Dio ogni istante della nostra vita. That's what it means to be a creature. And it is because of this that we can then begin to recognize who we are. Notice that this first fact we share with all other um, things that exist. Because, look at verse 1. In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. As God created the heaven and the earth, so He created man. So this one basic element of our identity we share with all creation. Just as light, just as air, just as the water, just as food, just as animals. We're all creatures. And the Bible would say, if you want to understand why the world is dissolving in this historical crisis, you must begin with the first element of human identity. Who are we? We are creatures. The light, the stars, the sun, the planets, the gases, we're all creatures. We share this first element with all other creatures. And the only thing different here is God. God is creator. We all are different from Him because we're creatures dependent on Him. That's the first building block of the biblical worldview. Primo elemento costitutivo di una visione della vita biblica. Riconoscere che siamo creature, così come il sole, la terra, i gas cosmici, gli animali, l'acqua, l'aria, creature totalmente dipendenti. The second element, again, 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So the second element is we are human beings. We're creatures, and we share that with all other creatures, but then distinctively from all other creatures, we are made in the image of God. Just as creaturehood distinguishes us from God, being human beings distinguishes us from any other creature. We're not animals. We're not God, but we're not animals. <laughs> uh, but we are made in His image. Which means, basically, we don't have time to go into any detail, that our human nature has uh, faculties that resemble the faculties of God. Faculties that resemble the, the faculties of God. God is as a, a personal conscience. He can say, I am. I am uh, God. I am He who is. Uh, I am that I am. <laughs> he says. He says. He says to Moses. He says to Moses. We have the gift of self-consciousness. We can say, "I am Lord." <laughs> I am, and you are. God says, "I am, and you are." And there can be a personal relationship because of the, this first element of consciousness. Then God is a moral being. God is an absolute moral being. He knows. In fact, he determines what is right and what is wrong morally. And he gave us the same gift to have a, a nature that is morally conscious of the existence of right and wrong. So we can not only relate personally, but in moral terms. We relate to God in moral terms. Thirdly, 
God is a rationality. God is a mind. The mind of God. And He gave us to have rationality, intellect, the mind. So that we can relate not only morally, but intellectually, rationally, logically to God. Of course, His consciousness is absolute. His moral consciousness is absolute. His intellect is absolute. We all have all of this in relative, limited measure. But because we have them, we can relate to Him personally. There are many other you know, faculties. Let me just mention one more. The will. The will of God. God has a will. The human being has a will. On the basis of his own self-consciousness, of moral consciousness, of, and, and in his own intellect and logic and rationality, he can make choices and decide and do. That's his will. It's volitional faculty. God has one. So we can relate to him uh, even from this point of view. If he tells us, do this, then we can decide to do that because we have been given this faculty. So these are faculties that are personal and, allows, and allow us to relate to God personally, as, as personal human beings. And, and then and reflect who God is in the way we are and the way we live. To be in the image of God means that we have faculties that resemble Him and secondly, that we can reflect the moral character of God in the way that we live. That's why we have bodies. <laughs> Angels are also personal creatures, but they're never mentioned as being made in the image of God. Why? Because they do not have bodies. Because an image is a visible, must be visible. <laughs> Uh, a, a visible reflection of someone that you cannot see. The angels not being visible are not images that can't be seen. But we have been given not only a personal nature who is spiritual in our very soul, but also a body through which we can reflect visibly the values, the moral values of God. His love, His mercy, His compassion, His, His tenderness, His sensitivity, His holiness. His justice, His righteousness, His equity, and so forth. All these beautiful uh, moral values of God or attributes of God must be manifested in life. This is the very essence of, our, of who we are. The very essence of our identity. And then, let us look at, uh, thirdly, verse 27. God created man, our creaturehood, in His own image, our human uh, humanness, <laughs> humanity, <laughs> in the image of God, He created him. And again, let me say, on a, a quickly here, that just as we as creatures are different from God, we as being made in the image of God are different from animals. This is important. We just see it in just a little bit. But um, the third foundational block of our identity is the final one. He made them male and female. Maschio e femmina. He created them. So our sexuality is also an element of distinction. 
just as our creaturehood uh, is an element of distinction and of identity, so being made in the image of God, our humanity is an element of identity, so our sexuality is an element of identity. A man, a creature is not the creator. A human being is not an animal, and a man is not a woman, and a woman is not a man. So what you have, I mean, I know that we perhaps have read this verse thousands of times in our life, as we read Genesis 1, verse 27. But did it ever occur to us that what we have here are the first three foundational elements to establish and understand who we are? Apart from God, we can never know who we are. We cannot uh, self-identify. Only God can identify Himself. (laughs) But being dependent of Him, we cannot say, I am this. We cannot. We don't have the ability to define who we are. So we must be told by God who we are. And He does here. Giving us the first three building blocks of our identity. You're a creature. But you're a human being, being made in the image of God. And you are male and female. And we know that male and female is not just a matter of sexual organs. (laughs) It has to do with who we are. Being intrinsically male and intrinsically women is very different. Very different. It reaches to the bottom of who we are. Um, Now, and then of course what we see here especially if we move to verse to chapter 2 of Genesis, is the institution of marriage when God brings together a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. So, uh, verse 21 of chapter 2, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto man. So it is God who leads the woman to man. This is first marriage is being celebrated. (laughs) And it's not the, the father who takes his bride. And it's not the mother who takes his son. It is God who takes the woman, the first woman to the first man. He celebrates. He institutionalizes marriage here. Uh, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That word now is emphatic. It means finally. Finally. I haven't found one like this in all the animals that I looked at. She must not be an animal. She must not be an animal. But look at at how immediately Adam identifies the woman. (laughs) She, uh, This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. What does it mean? That God, that Adam as he woke... He immediately understood that Eve was made of his own flesh and bones. Which means she is a human being, just as I am. God is is giving me a gift, finally, not a sheep, not a goat, not a cat, not a dog, but another human being, just like me. This spells out equality, equality. Man is not superior to the woman. The woman is not inferior to man because they are both equal in their human nature. Equality. But then, look at what happens. Uh, 
She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of men. He recognizes that. She was taken out of me. So if I am Ish, if I am man, she be Isha. She be woman. So uh, notice, however, that it is not Adam the names, it is not Eve the names Adam. It is Adam who names Eve. And that means authority. So, uh, what do we have here? We have this, this balanced perspective of Scripture. A man or a woman are equal in their nature uh, and their value in the eyes of God, but they are different. And this difference is not meant to create clashes and collisions uh, between the two. It's, it, it's actually meant to create unity uh, complementarity, fulfillment. Uh, there are some things that Adam is not good at, that Eve can do better than he can. <laughs> but there are some things Eve is not good at, and Adam can do better than she can. And if love, if love is the binding um, spiritual source that brings them, brings them together, those differences will work to complete them. If love is absent, if love is absent, all these differences will create a conflict. Conflict. And, and there is a sense, of course, in which the Bible will say, ultimately, the leader of the family is the man. But not to where the man can disregard the woman, uh, can dismiss the woman, can neglect the woman can downtrodden the woman. That's not allowed. A couple must always seek a common mind on the basis of love as man leads the family, leads the marriage. Mutual respect. Paul would say a lot about that. But let me, let me quickly go to chapter 3 and see, see what, what we're seeing here. Uh, except, let me say, what we saw in chapter 2 is equality and diversity for the sake of unity, okay? <laughs> Both equality and diversity are necessary for unity. Can a woman be totally united with an animal? No. He can be personally totally united with another human being. <laughs> so the equality of nature is necessary for unity. But can a person be completely united to another person if they are completely the same. Uh, no, they can't. They can't. There must be some difference for them to be able to unite at a creature level. So God explains here, both equality and diversity are necessary for unity. And the recognition of equality and the recognition of mutual diversity for the sake of unity are the first three building blocks of a marriage <laughs> in, in the eyes of God. So in Genesis 1, we have the first three building blocks of human identity. And in Genesis 2, we have the first three building blocks of human marriage, all clearly spelled out for us in an ideal of marriage that cannot be surpassed. So high it is, so high it is, so beautiful it is. So fulfilling it is. But, in Genesis 3, what do we see happening? Well, we see the serpent, Satan, 
comes to uh, Adam and Eve. He targets Eve and is able to deceive her. And especially if you see verses five and, uh, 4 and 5, the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. God has lied when he said, You shall die. If you go after this knowledge of good and evil and think of yourself as the absolute arbiters of good and evil, God has lied. You shall not die. But God, you know, placed you under his thumb and tries to control you through a lie that terrorizes you. God knows that in the day that you eat of that tree, that you go for that prerogative of deciding good and evil for yourself, apart from God, your eyes will be open and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. That's why God is using this deception to control you and to keep you from reaching out to that prerogative that He only wants to keep for Himself. He alone is God, he says. But we can be gods too. I tried and it's working out pretty good. Why don't you try too? Why always be depending on God? Why not stepping out on your own? Stop being a child. Just be grown up. Be your own man. Be your own master. Be independent. If you go to Genesis 1.27, you see exactly what he's doing. What did, we, what did we say the first element of human identity was? Creaturehood. Il primo elemento che determina l'identità dell'essere umano è l'essere creatura, riconoscere che siamo creature. E il primo elemento che Satana ha attaccato è proprio questo, obliterare la differenza fra il creatore e la creatura, facendo pensare all'uomo, portandolo a pensare che lui stesso poteva essere Dio indipendente da Dio, autonomo da Dio. Attacca il primo elemento costitutivo dell'identità umana. Subverts, sovverte tutto, sovverte tutto. E questo è il modo in cui il peccato morale agisce, destabilizza prima di tutto l'identità umana. This is the first way human sin acts first of all. It destabilizes our identity. It makes us think we're God. Forgetting that we're but creatures, completely depend on Him. So it elevates us to pride. But then, strangely, what sin does, it makes us behave like animals. First, it lowers up in a, it, 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 it lifts us up in a deceptive idea that we're God, and then it brings us to act like animals, lo- lowering us, violating us. When the male sovverte l'identità umana prima di tutto facendo pensare all'uomo di essere Dio indipendente da Dio e poi portarlo a comportarsi come delle bestie facendogli credere che è un animale come tutti gli altri obliterando quindi la distinzione fra l'animale e l'essere umano creato agli occhi di Dio so there is a subversion of identity and then thirdly Just as man is deceived by thinking he's God, then he's deceived by thinking he's an animal, then the third distortion is to lead a man to think that he's a woman, or a woman to think that he's man. Il peccato sovverte anche questo elemento qui, porta l'uomo a pensare prima di essere Dio e agire come se fosse Dio in termini assoluti, 
poi portando a pensare che è un animale come tutti gli altri animali, il darwinismo ha portato a questa concezione e poi a pensare un uomo che pensa di essere una donna, una donna che pensa di essere un uomo. E in questo modo i tre elementi fondamentali dell'identità umana sono totalmente sovvertiti e la società crolla, crolla. And society crumbles when the first three building blocks of human identity are destroyed, society cannot but crumble as our society is crumbling, whether in Italy or in America. This is a simple but very clear analysis of scripture on the human situation. Now we uh, um, there is a second area that we must within the time limit that we have think because we have just looked at the basic reasons why everything is falling apart that's what we have been looking at the big reasons why everything is falling apart but let us now focus on marriage and why marriage is particularly falling apart and to understand that let us jump all the way to the New Testament Ephesians chapter 5 Ephesians chapter 5 Uh, this is the passage. If Genesis 1 and 2 are the passages to derive a basic understanding of what marriage is, uh, of, of human identity, Ephesians and, and marriage, Ephesians 5 is the passage to go to, to go deeper into the subject of what a marriage is and how it should function. Do you remember, we were just talking about this a moment ago, ultimately, God has created all this beautiful thing, but we saw that the um, first element of marriage was recognition of equality, which means that every behavior, whether in the man or the woman, that, is con that violates equality is contrary to Scripture. A man should never treat, a husband should never treat his wife as, she, as if she's less than a human being. And the wife should never treat her husband as if he's less than a human being. Secondly, diversity. Uh, a woman, uh, a man should never treat, uh, you know, behave in such a way that he, uh, he does not recognize in the other who she is or who he is. He should recognize that she's a woman and she should treat his wife like a woman. And the woman should recognize man and treat her husband as a man should be treated. Both with that sensitivity and love as the Bible commands. And we saw that how even the differences work out to, to complete marriage. Uh, and complete the couple so that there will be one flesh. <laughs> Uh, that's actually how Genesis 2 ends. There shall be, the two shall be one. Because they're equal and different at the same time. Just like the church is one. Because we're evil, we're equal, I'm sorry. We're, we're equal as children of God, and but we have different gifts and functions. It's the same principle, marriage and the church. But then, what did we say? 
we see that there must be one element, however, and that element is love. We can understand all of this, and all of this makes sense. It responds to our very conscience. This is right. This is even logical. <laughs> this is even scientifically logical. But if there's no love, it will never work. It will never work. Paul defines this in, Rome, in Ephesians chapter 5. But before we uh, look at that, let me quickly say that this is another issue in which the point of view of the world is completely different from the point of view of God's people. I think we all would agree, even with the world, to say that love is a basic element in a marriage. Wouldn't everybody agree? Love is, is a basic element, an essential element. The difference is in the way we conceive love, in our understanding of what love is. Uh, the world tends to see love the most raw, basic, you know, elemental view of love is very sensual. I'm attracted to somebody. I want that person for me. So it tends to be immediately egocentric. I need you. I, I need you. I want you because you can serve me to fulfill these needs that I have. It's very self-centered. Then there's an element of emotion and of sentiment, sentimentalism, emotionalism. You, you fall in love and you, you have these thrilling sentiments inside of you. And that's basic. That's basically how people get married. They are attracted physically. They are infatuated emotionally. Uh, and so they get married. What a wonderful life we're going to have. And for them, that's love. But is it? Does the Bible recognize that as the essence of love? Well, it does not. It does not. So, let us go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. And at this point, the world would agree. Yeah, we're going to agree with that. Husbands, love your wife. Love, wives, love your husband. Okay, we're, we're on the same page. Even as, even as Christ loved the church, and gave himself for it. That's when the world will say, nah, <laughs> I don't agree. I mean, I agree about love, but that's not the definition of love that I, I agree with. Love is, love is sensual, love is emotional, love is sentimental. It's, it's I want and I need something, though I, so I get it. And I want for that person to be with me all the time, because I need that person. But here everything is, is turned upside down. Christ loved the church and considered the needs of the church. And to respond to those essential, absolute needs, he was willing to give his very life for the good of the church, this redemption of the church, the salvation of the church. So this is completely altruistic. Completely altruistic. It is not egocentric. It looks towards the other. And it looks after the needs of the other. It's not self-focused, but it's focused on the other. And for the good of the other, well, it's willing to sacrifice itself, even to the point of giving everything, even its very life. 
This is what the world does not see, does not want to see, does not believe. And to us, this is the primary cause. After all the things that we said, this is the primary cause why most marriages fall apart. Fall apart. Because the whole concept of God, the whole concept of identity, and the whole concept of love is wrong. It's wrong. Uh, so let us let us take a little time here, some time here to try to understand the essence of this of this love. So the Bible would have us to think, tells us that love is a spiritual quality. It's not emotional to begin with. Love does have emotions, but it's not primarily emotions. Uh, but it's that spiritual quality by which I desire the good of the other. And I am willing to realize that good, that well-being, to give what I can, even all of myself, for it. That's what love is, according to Scripture. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, Christ so loved the church that He gave Himself for it. Loving and giving. Loving and giving. Loving and giving. A completely continued related in Scripture. Not love and taking, love and taking, love and grabbing, love and using. Love and giving, love and giving, love and giving. That's what it is all about. But the, the sin has, has subverted this too, you see. Evil works always to turn things upside down. It has completely redirected the essence of love, obliterating what love is in its very essence. Paul says, love does not seek his own, its own, but it seeks the good of the other. And what sin has done is destroyed love, kept the, the, the word love, but completely changed its meaning. And the world who is following the serpent <laughs> believes that and follows that and that's why everything is imploding that's why everything is imploding uh, let me uh, let me quickly now um, say the basic characteristics of love as they are explained to us here by Paul um, Chapter 5, verse 25. So, what is love? What does this love do? Um, what can we draw from, from this? First of all, one thing that should really strike us is that this love is unconditional. This love is unconditional. Christ loved the church. What was the church? Well, we can read in Ephesians 2. Let us just stay in Ephesians as we try to uh, you know, develop the essentials of, of love. What did the church look like when Christ loved her? Well, Paul says in verse 1 through 3, you as he quickened who were dead. Christ loved a corpse, a cadaver. You were dead in trespasses and sins. When time passed, you walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom we all, we all, we all, we all Christians were like that, also had our conversation in times past uh, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, so repulsive were we by nature that we were children of wrath, deserving of wrath, even as others, even as everybody else. But God, who is rich in mercy for His great agape, His great love wherewith He loved us, even as we were dead in sins, He quickened us together with Christ. By grace are ye saved. This is the bride that Christ loved. She was not beautiful. She was not even alive, according to His values. She was a corpse. She was a cadaver. Completely unresponsive to Him. This is what spiritual death is. If human being is unresponsive to God, God loves, but He's not loved back. God speaks, but He's not heard. God moves, but He's not felt. He cares, but He's not cared for. He recognizes, but He's not recognized. He loves, but he's hated. This is an awful description of our nature. And yet, verse 4 says, But God loved us. So what kind of love are we talking about? Does God need the church? No. He doesn't need the church. Is the church lovable? No. It's all deserving wrath, hell, and judgment. So why did he love the church? If he didn't need the church and the church was completely repulsive, why did he love the church? Because God is love. God's love is unconditional. God's God's love is not moved by us. It's not deserved by us. But God's love is. God's love is. It never faileth. And he loves unconditionally. Even though we hate Him, He loves us. Even though we do not see Him, He seeks us. We would not, we live denying that He even exists. But lo and behold, He loves us so much, He loved us so much that He gave His own life for us. <coughs> what a difference. Does the world understand this? No, not at all. Not at all. So this is the kind of love that we should have when we step into a marriage. And when we live at our marriages always. That love is going to be tried. But that love should continue no matter what. You remember the passage in Matthew chapter 5 verse 42, 43, 44. They said, they have taught you, love those who love you, hate those who hate you. But I say unto you differently, love even your enemies. Even those that are despising you, persecuting you, uh, speaking evil of you, love them anyway. You say, but they don't deserve it. No, but neither do you. Love them of the love of God, which is unconditional. 
And I want you to, to see this always in Ephesians. If you will go to chapter 5, uh, actually chapter, yes, chapter 5. See, look at, look at verse 2. Walk in the love of Christ also, as Christ also has loved us and gave himself for us. Notice that Paul says here that we should love one another. And he uses the same word, <laughs> love, as he does in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Verse 2, love each other in the church as Christ has loved us and gave himself for us. Notice that Paul does not, this is very important, Paul does not use a different word for love when he speaks of marriage. Paul does not use a different word when he speaks of marriage. It's the same kind of love that is, should be among God's people in the church, should be in a marriage. Of course, a marriage has an extra something to it. <laughs> there is a particular sentiment or emotion or attachment to the person, something unique that God creates that is commitment. You're committed to that person. And in a, I want to say mystical way, <laughs> But I want to say in a particular, peculiar way. But the essence, that's secondary. Paul would have us to think that that uh, extra uh, factor is not the essence of it. The essence of it is the love of Christ. The love of Christ. Uh, look at the way Paul commands that Christians should behave and treat one another. Uh, verse chapter 4 verse 32 be kind to one another tender hearted forgive one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us so we should do that in marriage shouldn't we the same kind of love we should husband and wife should be kind to one another tender hearted sensitive forgiving even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven us these are the basic expressions of love in the church and in the marriage. Or, for example, look at verse 28 of chapter 4. Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. So what Paul is saying that in the context of the church, love should be concerned with the spiritual needs of others, and the material needs of others. Doesn't he say that here? Work. Not that you may spend it all on your own, all for yourself. <laughs> you know, that's a, that's a selfish, capitalistic spirit that has almost destroyed this nation. The Bible would not have us to think that way. The Bible would say, work so that you may take care of your needs, the needs of your family, but have also something to give to others. And of course, he's speaking especially among uh, you know the church community. So the spiritual needs are to be taken care of. The material needs will be taken care of. I would ask you a question: Would you be willing, if someone here will lose their job, to have him over every day and give him something to eat, if needs be? 
What if he doesn't have a place to stay? Would you open your home and share what you have with that person so that he can have the most basic elements to survive? I'm sure you would say, yes, indeed. What if you have to sell your car? You perhaps have three cars or two cars. Well, what if you have to sell one car and have enough to help the other? Would you do it? What if you would have to sell your home and buy a smaller one? If, if someone that really close to you has needs, would you be willing to do it? This, is, this was practiced in the early church. Chap, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 5. That's how the Bible speaks. Chapter 4, that's how the Bible speaks. Both the spiritual and the material should be cared for in the context of the church. The same in the context of marriage. Both spiritual and material. In reality... Uh, I'll just give you a synopsis here of what we've been trying to pursue in Italy. We've been talking about this for several months, and we, we, we've developed the theme in this way. As love is desirous to care for the needs of others, which needs, all needs, all needs, encompassing the whole person, so should love be. So for a husband to love his wife truly means to care for her spiritual needs, for her moral needs, for her intellectual needs, <laughs> for her emotional needs, for her material needs, for her sexual needs. Love is all-encompassing. And when you begin to develop the theme this way, so the wife should care for the spiritual needs of her husband, the moral needs of her husband, the intellectual needs of her husband, the emotional needs of her husband, the material needs of her husband, the sexual needs of her husband. It's all encompassing. Now all of this can be displayed or done to everybody. There are limits to the way love would, would um, respond to these needs outside of the bond of marriage. But the essence is the same, caring for the person. And marriage is that uh, institution, that bond of commitment that allows you to express and to care for the needs of others uh, as widely and as deeply as possible in every aspect of the, other, uh, of, the, of the person. Not only the physical, but also the spiritual. Not only the spiritual, the intellectual. Not only the intellectual, but the moral. And when you begin to consider the implications of all this, you say, have I ever loved? Have I ever loved my spouse the way I'm supposed to be loved? You know, I've been caring about material things, but not spiritual. When I've been so focused on the spiritual, I forget the sexual. And, and we, we tend to have these imbalances, whereas love is, is even. Takes care of the whole person takes care of the whole person unconditionally. Christ gave all of Himself for us. Uh, unconditional, all-encompassing, all-giving, all-giving. And then it is imperative. Paul doesn't say, love your wives if you feel like it. Love your wives if they behave right. Says, love your wives. Because if God thought that way and treated us that way, we would all be in hell. 
But it does, it, that's not the love of God. You see, the element of unconditionality is of the essence of love. And if we do not love unconditionally, we do not love as God loves. Our enemy all the way to our mate. Our mate all the way to the last. Our very enemy. Our greatest enemy. We were the greatest enemies of God. And yet he loved us and gave himself for us. We come to the end of our thoughts. Uh, and I would like to say this is forever. As death do a spark. This is forever. That's why Mary should be contemplated very seriously. Uh, especially from a Christian point of view. Uh, it is forever. This is a lifetime calling. Uh, love will be tried marriage will be tried sometimes inner issues will work for the destruction of a marriage issues that concern the couple itself other times external factors will bring a lot of pressure to destroy the marriage and you say well you know this is forever the same person forever all life long wow Giving this much all the time, how can I do it? How can I do it? Well, the Bible says, you're a creature. <laughs> you depend on God. The last verse I will quote to end our thoughts is Ephesians 3, in fact. You remember when Christ said, uh, I pray, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passes all knowledge that he might be filled with all fullness of God. That's it. The power is not in us. The ability is not in us. Paul says it is as you know and deepen your knowledge of the love of Christ in your life that you'll be able daily to love your mate as Christ loved the church. To, to love your church members as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. To love the world, even the most repulsive of the world, as Christ loved the church. We cannot do it. We cannot even begin to do it. <laughs> he alone can enable us, and he enables us as we dwell in him. If we dwell in Him as He dwells in us, He will make us able to give abundant fruit in the love of God. May God bless you all, each and every one. Especially may God bless Luca and Lavinia. <laughs> as tomorrow they will be celebrating their marriage. God be praised. Amen.